When I left home, the maid asked me where I was off to, and I said, wherever, whatever, have a nice day. This road has no end. It probably goes all the way around the world. Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, William Shakespeare. You sound so disenthused. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm a little sicky, so my voice is not going to be very interesting. Well, I'll try. I'll try for you and only you and no one else. If I sound weird, it's cause of that. Hi, a little sicky. My name's Megan Charlo, and I use she-her pronouns. Did I even say my name? No. My name is Matthew James Marquez. I use he-him pronouns. And once again, I am sick. And today we are discussing the 1991 film My Own Private Idaho, written and directed by Gus Van Sant, and partly inspired by William Shakespeare's Henry IV, Parts 1 and 2, as well as Henry V. My Own Private Idaho is set in contemporary America, with our main point of view being that of a narcoleptic male sex worker drifting his way from scene to scene. Now, we've talked about new queer cinema before with Derek Jarman's Edward II, and My Own Private Idaho occupies the same era in filmmaking. New queer cinema is marked by an unabashed, aggressive depiction of queer sexuality produced by independent film companies, and My Own Private Idaho is no different. Produced by Fine Line Features, itself an independent arm of New Line Cinema. Gus Van Sant is a gay filmmaker who made his mark with 1989's Drugstore Cowboy before going on to direct this film. I've actually seen a surprising amount of his movies without knowing that he was the director of this film, because he went on to direct Goodwill Hunting, for which he received an Oscar nomination for Best Director, and the biopic Milk, for which he also received a nomination. He's never been afraid to tackle hard topics. I'm not going to get super into this filmography because Megan would kill me because this is not an acting corner, and it would be a directing corner, and I don't do those. You can't do both. So, some production facts about my own private Idaho. This film was based on Gus Van Sant's own experiences living in Hollywood in the 1970s, but he shelved the script he was working on after reading a book, John Retchie's City of Night, and thought that the book told what he wanted to say better, which I respect entirely. When you come across a work that's like, this is better than what I was doing, so I'm not going to do it. Good job, they did it. Close it. Yep. But he resurrected the script after meeting a street kid who would inspire the main character, Mike. This film was conceived with two scenarios blended together, the story of Mike drifting in and out of existence, and the story of Scott, which is based on the aforementioned Shakespeare plays. Given the nature of the material, gay sex workers on the streets, the film was notoriously hard to produce. And it wasn't until Gus Van Sant sent the script to Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix's agents that the film got some traction. Now, Keanu received the script and loved it, but Phoenix's agent wouldn't let him read it. Keanu Reeves then drove to River Phoenix's house and gave him the script personally. And with the actor signing on, the film was pushed and New Line accepted it with a $2.5 million budget. My Own Private Idaho was released in limited theaters on September 29th, 1991, and made $6.8 million, which is very good from an indie standpoint. Alright, before I keep going, I'm gonna head the podcast over to Megan. The Henry ad. It's time. So, I'm just gonna give a short synopsis of all three, because that's what we're dealing with right here. Okay, go. So Henry IV's part one and two and Henry V all follow Prince Hal on his path to becoming King Henry V. In Henry IV, he's slumming it and hanging out with knaves and scoundrels instead of acting like a proper prince, and his best knave, Falstaff, is a coward and loudmouth all in one and was a huge hit for Elizabethan audiences, which is why you also find him in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Anyway, Hal goofs around until war times when he wants to prove himself against his rival Hotspur, who's a perfect picture of a prince if it weren't for him being traitorous. Hal defeats Hotspur and regains his father's favor, all in time for his dad to die. 
Once he's Mr. Royalty, he completely abandons his knavish friends like Falstaff, who then also dies. It's sad. Once he's king, he starts a war with France that he eventually wins, while all of Falstaff's friends also end up dying. Then he gets married to a French chick, and the moral of the story is, uh, being a king sure is something. I'm sure it was super interesting at the time. It's like when we go see, like, Lincoln, and we go, man, wasn't Lincoln sure a guy? It's time once again, Megan, for Marquez's acting corner, 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 corner. We've got two big stars here, Megan. We have Keanu Reeves, who plays Scott Favor. Our Hal. What could I say about Keanu? He's a superstar and a major cutie. He got his breakout role playing Ted Theodore Logan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which pivoted him into leads in Point Break and then Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. After he was in My Own Private Idaho, he starred in Box Office Success Speed, but then followed it up with a huge slump until he was Neo in the Matrix series, which he followed it up with a huge slump, after which he was John Wick in 2014, and now we're in the middle of a Keanu-sance. His mere cameo in a film makes headlines. I like Keanu Reeves. What are your thoughts on Keanu? He said a nice thing at a thing once, when he was like, you're all something. It was a compliment. What? When when the person was like, you're breathtaking, and he turned to the audience, he was like, you're all breathtaking. And it was like just a thing, and the internet went wild for like a week. Megan, I may be shooting a weird shot here, but I feel like Constantine was a movie you watched growing up. I saw it in theaters. It was my first R-rated film I saw in theaters. Wow, I poo. Circle gets the square. (laughs) The other thing I want to mention is that Keanu Reeves in an interview revealed that he doesn't believe that William Shakespeare wrote the plays of William Shakespeare. What? what? No, no, we're not happy about this, Marquez. We're very upset by this. Yeah, it's weird to me because Keanu is somebody who massively gets misattributed as being just the guy who says whoa and like he gets shat on for well he was just cute and he has no depth and to say like well i don't think shakespeare wrote his plays because how could a guy from nowhere do something like that i'm like come on keanu all right pot meet kettle yeah he also plays don john and kenneth Branagh's much ado about nothing so i'm sure we'll one day visit keanu again All right, River Phoenix plays Mike, brother to Joaquin Phoenix. River got his start early, appearing in various TV specials before landing a lead gig in Joe Dante's Explorers. This turned into a role in Stand By Me, which made River a household name, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for his role in Running on Empty. River sadly passed several years after my own private Idaho due to drug complications, By all accounts, he would have been a major movie star, and he died way too young. He was an avid environmentalist and a vegan, and he really wanted to preserve the earth, which I'm sure he'd be so happy with the state of the world today. Just kidding, we live in a nightmare. He was also a musician, and many of his closest friends said his music was his true passion. His band, Aleka's Addict, has a song, Too Many Colors, that's actually on the My Own Private Idaho soundtrack. So, talking about River has left me a little bit depressed, so I'm just going to pivot to the fact that the musician Flea appears in this film, playing the role of Bud, and I think that's funny. I think it's upsetting that I don't know actors, and I was like, that is Keanu Reeves. That's a guy. That's a thing. Oh, hey, it's Flea. I mean, it's Flea, Megan. He's very recognizable. He that's really the thing. is. The thing about River Phoenix is, I love the actor. He is just kind of your standard white pretty boy. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves kind of has a weirder energy to him. Well, also, I've seen a lot of Keanu Reeves in my life, and River Phoenix died young. <laughs> so you did, haven't seen a lot of his films. Keanu Reeves has also done a lot of, like, weird genre flicks that River Phoenix only did, like, one of. It's understandable, I think. Before we start the film... Oh, shit. I was thinking about the Henry ad. 
And I'd hope so, Megan. Well, yes. So at the start of Henry V, there's that whole Ophra Muse of Fire bit that basically breaks down to like, hey, audience, it's just a play. And I wish we could use like actual horses and kings and sets, but like we can't. So please just imagine it. And like film can use like actual horses and cars and motorcycles and shit. And I don't know. It just really hit me, I guess, because we haven't done a Henry V. And I was just like, wow, Muse of Fire. It happened, Shakespeare. We did it, buddy. Megan, I totally get it. I don't know. It's just a thing because like they could never have imagined back then. Hey, Megan, want to know what Shakespeare would say about this film? Oh, wow. Moving pictures. Moving pictures. Like, that's what it boils down to. Film is amazing because you can do this stuff. Totally get it. Let's just start the film. (laughs) Okay. We start off with the definition of narcolepsy. I'm sure that's not important at all. Nope. And then we meet a guy. It's River Phoenix. And he's just looking at a road, and he's just like, I know every road, they're all different. Every country road is totally different, and this road is the most different one. And I looked at it and went, looks like every road I've ever seen in a country. But Megan, have you walked all the roads that River Phoenix has walked? Apparently not. Because roads are kind of like fucked up faces. No, this one specifically. Oh, just this one specifically? Yeah, he's like, this is my road. It has a fucked up face, which they kept trying to show me and I never saw. But then guess what, Marquez? What? He falls asleep suddenly because he has narcolepsy. It was important. Yeah, I was going to say he falls asleep. Yeah, he falls asleep. I don't mean to make light of narcolepsy because it is a very serious condition, but also... uh, Well, Megan, to be honest, it's being used in this film as a way to showcase the fact that this character is a drifter. So it's fine for us to make fun of it because the film is also using it as a plot device and not treating it as like a serious condition that anyone cares about. Yes. Everyone kind of just treats his narcolepsy as just a problem they have to deal with or he just does that. Anyway, while he's asleep, he dreams of a woman who we can assume is his mother cradling him and saying it's going to be all right. And we go, oh, there's going to be a mommy problem. And we hear yodeling. We haven't left big business. It's Bette Midler. It's not Bette Midler. It's some other lady who looks nothing like Bette Midler. What if it was Bette Midler? I would die. Shakespeare Adaptation Cinematic Universe. The S-A-C-U. He's up now. He's getting a blowjob. He's up now. Get it? He's up? Yes. He's up? You know, like the penis? Yeah. Our boy Mike is a sex worker. Oh, and as a metaphor for him coming, a barn falls in that street we saw earlier. This is an artsy film. What are you talking about, Megan? I don't know what you mean. This is a clear... You could also possibly see it as... His folksy upbringing being destroyed by his gay lifestyle. He also asks his John for ten more dollars. I don't think he's going to pay back those ten dollars with more sex acts. I don't think he'll ever see that guy again. Nope. He leaves, he's got the ten dollars, he goes onto the streets, he sees a lady who looks like his mom, and oh man, he's gonna narcolepsy. And then we cut to him turning tricks at a rest stop. He meets a kind of older man. The older man brings him to his place, makes him take off his shoes, and apparently this John is obsessed with cleaning. And Mike cleans as a kink while the other guy dances, and Mike is dressed up like a little Dutch boy. And then Mike's gonna clean him. That's the last bit. And this just is showing kind of what Mike goes through on a day-to-day basis. So at this point, I was like, okay, so maybe Mike is Hal. Because I know that this is the Henriad, and this is our only lead character. And I guess he's doing something that people would say a future king or person in charge authority figure shouldn't be doing. So maybe, I don't know. We cut to a different night. Mike is now picked up by an older lady, which he is surprised by because usually just men pick him up. He also seems completely uninterested because he's gay. This lady brings him to her place and we meet 
Scott and Gary. Keanu Reeves and a guy. Uh, another guy. Okay, another question for people who might know more about the world than I do. If you're getting a sex worker for an orgy or like multiple people at once, don't you have to tell them? Or like, isn't that just like the right thing to do is be like, by the way. I mean, yes. So what the heck? How come they all seem cool with this lady who didn't tell them? Or at least didn't tell Mike. Yeah, I think she just didn't tell Mike because Scott explains to Mike, ah, this isn't weird. She just has a hard time getting warmed up. So she just has three guys at once. Okay, but like, I don't know. Maybe she's just not as perceptive as we are in seeing that how gay Mike is. Because if she was like, also two other dudes will be there, maybe Mike would be more into it. My response to you saying that is, so there is no union for sex workers. Yeah, that's bullshit. Megan, yeah, sex work should be legalized and should be able to form unions. Yeah. This is something at Avant Bar that I believe in. So sex work should be legalized so we can... Treat sex workers like they're actually people and they can, you know, have rights. Yes. And safety. Yes, because we will later hear other stories of different sex workers in this, and they are treated much worse than this lady just not telling Mike that there are two other guys involved. Mike is in the ladies' room, and she starts to kiss him, and then he's like, well, my mom was a lady, and then he goes to sleep again. Luckily, Keanu and Gary carry him out. I should say Scott. Scott and Gary carry him out. So right now I'm thinking, okay... Mike is Hal, and these guys are Falstaff and Poins, because they're also sex workers and friends that were together. So Scott drags Mike outside to the street of the suburbs where they are, and tells Mike, don't worry, you'll be safe here, even though Mike's asleep. And we learn a couple things about Scott here. He has a rich dad. He lived in a neighborhood very similar to this. Never mind, he's Hal. He hates his dad. He's Hal. He's sick of thinking of his father's expectations of him. Yeah, his dad thinks of him as a threat, not a child. But like a disappointing threat? Like, come on. So Mike is narcolepsy? Falstaff with narcolepsy? I don't think so, Megan. No, he is not at all really debaucherous enough. Nope. He's a, like a good boy. There's no good boys in this. He can't be Hotspur. Unless. No. Unless... I don't see it. He's not. He's not. He's no one. Spoilers. He's no one. There's no one in the Henriad that he connects to. He is just Mike. And I love this. We'll get back to it. We'll get back to it. All right. We have an interlude scene at a lewd place. An interlude. <laughs> we are outside an adult arcade and we see a bunch of magazines on a stand of shirtless boys that are porno mags and we got scott we got gary we got mike we got all our friends and marquez goes "Ooh, is this mistress quickly's tavern it's not it's not my main point about this scene megan is i wish there were more scenes like this so what we learn from this scene is the magazine covers are all talking to each other basically a bunch of them start talking about how scott doesn't need this He's rich, he's just slumming it for fun, like he's just doing sex work for fun, and he doesn't have to be here. And it works almost like a chorus. It and is exactly that. It would be fantastic to just be like, oh, and here's an interesting way to say this bullet point that we want to make sure is covered. But yeah, we never come back to this. I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound weird, considering A, how much I like this movie, spoiler, and B what this movie is. I wish this was more focused. Yeah. Like, I wish this was a through line that was explored more in depth. Like, the fact that they model is never even brought up again. Yes. There's nothing about this that really comes up again. So I feel you. Mikey wakes up in that suburb, and he is almost picked up by a guy who was in that lady's car previously. His name is Hans, and he shakes his Hans. They shake cons, Megan. And Mike's like, I can tell this guy's a pervert. I do not want to get in his car. And then he falls asleep. And all of a sudden, they're in Portland now. And Scott is holding Mike at a fountain. It's very Renaissance. 
And Scott reveals to Mike that Hans drove them to Portland and they didn't do anything weird. Yeah, it kind of sucks. Mike's immediate thought is, you must have had him use my body while I was asleep. And Scott's like, no. But also, Mike feels like he's lived his whole life as a person who things happen to him. I don't fault Mike for thinking this. No, I don't this. fault him. It just sucks. Like, it I'm sucks not... that his life is like this? Yes, it sucks both that his life is like this and that he has experienced so much that that seems to be the most logical step to him. I feel like I wish that the Henriette had a character like this. Yeah. Like, without the narcolepsy, because they would just make it a huge joke. But, like, with something. They go to a diner, and they start talking about how they want to see Bob. Because apparently Scott and Bob had a thing going on, and Scott turned it off because Bob was clearly in love with him. And Scott makes it clear that, like, he kind of has a familial feeling for Bob, it seems. He says he loves Bob more than his father and his mother, his mother and his father. He loves Bob. But also he fucks Bob. Yeah, it's like a weird, th well, like, it's just a thing of he's like, I'm not in love with him. Yeah. And he was in love with me. And, you know, I respect him for drawing the line and being like, I gotta say no to you now. Gary shows up. Listen, Gary doesn't matter. Can we just say this? Gary doesn't matter. I don't think Gary is any character as yeah. well. Well, he's one of the guys. He's like Bardolph or something. Yeah, whatever. Fuck him. But then we get a bunch of scenes in the diner where various male sex workers are talking about different stories, like the first time that they turned a trick or a time that a shitty thing happened to them. And I actually really dig this. I think it really provides the film with just a viewpoint into the lives of these sex workers just on the streets of Portland. Even if you don't approve of what they do for a job, you can recognize that they're treated horribly and they don't deserve that so anyway mike wakes up on the roof and bob's here yeah bob pigeon is his name Megan, and he's back from boise and bud is here flea and i think bud might be points i don't know he shows up with bob and bob is obviously falstaff and they are going to jane lightworks place i like it that's mistress quickly for you not in the know I also want to point out that they call him Fat Bob, which is very similar to how in all of the things that have Falstaff, they call him things like Sir John Paunch. They make references to him being portly. This is clearly now Shakespeare. It's gone from zero to 100. And I'm in. When this shit starts with them quoting, we have heard the chimes at midnight and they're just talking. And they kind of like really expertly make it sound like they are talking street talk but saying lines from Shakespeare. It, it's well, a really interesting scene. Well, because part of what they do is they don't fully take the lines from Shakespeare. They'll replace a couple words or they'll have the full line and it's like, well, you know, Fat Bob is a very poetic soul. But then someone will respond just like, that we have, Fat Bob, that we have. <laughs> like, it will just blend it really well. And certain characters, like Bob, will consistently talk that way. Scott will talk that way when he's talking to Bob because it's just like a natural thing. And it works. Scott goes to see Bob. Bob is asleep and Scott gets Mike to steal his cocaine. <laughs> Scott wakes up Bob. And it's this scene that we find out that Scott's actually the mayor's son. It's like the king's son, except it's a mare now. Speaking of doing nice modernizations of sections, we get this little rephrasing of Henry IV Part One's Act 1, Scene 2, where Falstaff asks, what time is it? And Hal's just like, what do you care? Unless it were chickens and women and stuff. And in here... Scott says, what do you care? You wouldn't give a look at a clock unless hours were lines of coke. Dials looked like the signs of gay bars or time itself was a fair hustler in black leather. And it's just, mwah, it's so good. Bob wakes up more. He's like, ah, yes, yeah, Scott, my true son. I'm so much better of a father to you than your father. Yada, yada, yada. Oh my gosh, my cocaine is gone. Bud, you stole my cocaine. Lady Jane stole my cocaine, and he's getting mad at everyone except for dang Mike and Scott, who actually did it. 
And continuing down the plot of Henry IV Part One, I'm just gonna call them Bob's boys. Bob's boys. Bob's boys all say, hey, tomorrow there's some rock and roll promoters that are gonna be carrying loot around town. We should go rob them. Which happens. It's not rock and roll promoters, but you know. That's the modern day version of, what, Pilgrims? Is that what it was? Yes, it was Pilgrims. And Mike doesn't want to do it. Mike's like, I'm not in. And Scott's like, wait, Mike, hold on a second. Let's pull a prank. And at this point, I'm like, so Mike is points. Which is weird, but okay. Because also, he's not, not points. points. But for this, he stands in for points. For and this Bud w- is not points. It's for this one scene. For this one scene, he's points. We learn that money is no issue anyway, because in one week, Scott inherits his fortune. And when Scott turns 21, he doesn't want this life anymore. And he does the monologue. That monologue we talked about in Wishbone, that Wishbone messed up, where Hal's just like, you know, one day I'm going to be like, these guys are sucky, and I'll step away, and everyone who's rich will be like, wow, he looks so much better now that he's walking away from those sucky guys. I need to say something. Fuck Hal. Oh, yeah. No, as we said in Wishbone, Hal's terrible. I just need to say it every time this speech comes up. I hate this speech. It is supposed to be that you're like, oh, I get it. Hal's being smart. But I hear this speech and I go, oh, I get it. Hal's a fucking asshole who's going to betray the only people who actually like him, and he's been lying this whole time. What's weird about it, though, is in this film, Bob's right there and, like, listening. Yeah. There's no asides in this movie, I don't think. We don't really get that sort of convention, which I do like because... it's unnatural. Well, because we've talked about before on this podcast about how putting monologues in contemporary shit and what do you do with them in film? What do you do with a monologue? And I think this really does have a line where it's like, well, Bob can hear him. Bob just doesn't get it. And Bob, like, cool so when you're king you'll give us jobs yeah it sucks because i'm like bob if you understood what he'd said sadness wouldn't occur later i mean it would still be sad but nowhere near as sad correct time passes it's time to go get that rock and roll loot bob hasn't seen his penis in four years just put that down there, Megan. That's what he said. Also, I'm pretty sure at some point we find out that Scott's been doing this for four years. And I'm like, that's weird that it's the same amount of time. Yeah, so I didn't have many notes on this scene. I just said it's the scene from Henry the Fourth. Bob's boys rob the concert promoters. And then Scott and Mike are dressed up in disguises. And they set off firecrackers and scare the others. So I like the difference that is made in this, though, which is in Henry, Hal and Poins are just like, no, we aren't going. Me, a thief, never, says Wishbone. And then they do show up just to rob Falstaff. While in this version, they went, okay, we'll go. And then when they get there, they pretend to get scared, basically, and run away before anything happens. But that's just them changing so that they can attack. I don't know why. I just kind of like that because it is more realistic to me. Then if someone was like, I'm not going, but I know exactly where you are and I then you got robbed. I don't know. I just like the change. It's it's not major, but I like it. So the next scene, we have a short scene let of Jack Favor, Scott's dad, who wants to find his son. Just like King Henry IV, he says he's going to be in the taverns with all the denizens. That's where he goes now. We also get a small scene where Scott and Mike are on a motorbike. And I just gotta say, one of them says, so what I'm getting at is that we're still alive. And the other one says, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Which I just like this weird, amorphous dialogue that happens. It's very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's a little fourth wally. It's pontificating upon itself, which some people might not like, but I dig. 
And now we're back to Henry the Fourth, Part One, because Bob comes back, and then Bob lies about how many people bested him, and the number keeps growing and growing. He's like, "There's thirty. There were sixteen. I was fighting two, and then it was four, and there's seven people, eleven guys, three more." And the number just keeps rising. And it's the same joke that Shakespeare used, and it works perfectly. To me, there's not much different here. I mean, it's good. Eventually, Scott's like, here's the money. It was us. Here you go. And Bob's like, oh, you're the best. Why would I ever call you a coward? You're great. And then the film cut an incredible scene that was going to be in it. And I'm sad. I wish we had never watched the deleted scenes on the DVD, Megan. So the film would have had the scene in Henry IV where Falstaff and Hal are like, well, let's practice what you'll say to your father. And they take turns playing the roles of Henry IV and Hal. And it's just dang good because Falstaff's like, ah, yes, you're an incredible friend. What's his name? Falstaff? Wow, he's so good. And then when Hal plays Henry IV, he's like, Everything's great except for your shitty friend Falstaff. I could go on about this. I'm not going to. I think it's essential to their relationship as characters in the play. I think that scene fucking rules. It's essential and I'm sad that they cut it. We get a Christopher Walken impression for a brief moment. It's good. I think this film needs more Bob because I think I care more about Bob because I know about Helen Falstaff and I care about them. Here's why I like Bob. I like Bob because Bob knows he's a piece of shit. That's why I like Falstaff. I like that Falstaff, A, knows he's a piece of shit, pretends he's not a piece of shit, but you can tell that he knows that he is. And it's like this weird thing about the character. Whereas why I hate Hal... I'm just pretending to be a piece of shit. I'm actually incredible, which is the most piece of shit thing a person can say. Correct. Really, what we're saying is those characters are foils for each other because one is a piece of shit who says that he's not a piece of shit by pretending to be a piece of shit. And the other one is a piece of shit, pretends that he's not a piece of shit, but knows he is one. Anyway, moving on. That was a deleted scene. It's not in this film. The police come and all of the sex workers, all Bob's boys, they're like, ah, run away. And then the police just follow and almost catch Scott and Mike. But Scott and Mike are smart and they jump into a bed and pretend to be having gay sex because police can't stand that. And then a guy is like, your dad wants to see you. And Scott goes, fuck you. I love that. And then in the next scene, he's seeing his dad. So why did he even say that? Yeah, yeah. Because he secretly wants his dad to like him. I know. It's just stupid. It's not stupid. I mean, hell sucks. That's really what I mean by it's stupid. So Scott shows up to his dad's place all gayed up. He's more gayed up than he was in the earlier scene. He's like in leather and like a collar. He is wearing a jacket with no shirt under it. I mean, come on. This is where we learn about Bill Davis. Oh, man, what a guy. What a guy. So sexy. Did you see what he did with the family ranch? Of course, like we were saying, this is Hotspur. This is the person that the king's like, man, wow, I wish my son was more like this guy. He points out to Hal that, like, he has more interest to my estate than you could hold a candle to. And then I got to think about how you're such a degenerate. Thanks, Dad, for the slap in the face. But, like, it's weird because he wants his dad to like him. I don't get that. Right, and, like, instantly he's like, no, dad, I'm going to prove it to you. I love you so much. And he gives him a big hug, and then his dad gags a little, and his heart beats really fast because his dad's going to die eventually. Yeah, so here's the thing, Megan. Kingship, we've talked about before. It's a weird thing. The Elizabethans loved the concept of kingship, and we, in America, don't have that concept that much so So, when you modernize it it's like ah yes the mayoral line because what hell is is a fictionalization of the ideal of what a king is supposed to be it doesn't exist in real life and the fact that we don't even here in contemporary america have the idealization of what a king should be it makes it doubly removed So it's very strange to have him be like, yes, dad, I'll inherit all your money because kingship is you're inheriting the stewardship of your people. It's not not just getting some money. He's not inheriting the mayoral position because that's not something that we have. So the money part doesn't really track. 
but it never tracks when you try to make a contemporary kingship. Yeah. We go back to the diner where the sex workers are all talking about their dreams for the future. Yeah, what they want to do with their life. And we get one who wants to be in control of his music career. Scott doesn't care about his future. Because he's going to have money and it doesn't matter. He has a safety net. He could literally do whatever he wants. Hal has a safety net. The thing that I hate so much is that Hal is like, I can be amongst all the shitty people, but I can fall back. Mike wants to go to Idaho. His own private one? No, he wants to visit his family. My own private Idaho in this economy? No, it'll just be my brother's trailer in Idaho. Well, I like this because he brings it up after everyone talks about what they want to do with the future. And I think that it's very interesting that what Mike wants is... To go back to his past? Yes. I love it. What he wants his future to be is to figure out who he is. And that kind of rules. So. They in Idaho. Mike's like, this is my fucked up face road. I know it. And then they go to a fire and have a little camp night. And Scott's just like, yeah, I have an incredible life with a maid. And then I was like, screw this. I'm Audi 5000. What I like is Mike goes, I never had a good upbringing. I feel like I would be normal if I had a good upbringing. And Scott just goes, what is normal? And he says, I didn't have like a dog growing up or a normal dad. And then the scene pivots to Mike really wanting to talk to Scott, really talk to him. Mike doesn't feel like he can be close to Scott because no one can be close to Scott. He's just like, so like, what am I to you, Scott? Because like, we're on this road trip together. We pretended to be having sex when the cops came. And Scott just like, best friend. Yeah, you're my best friend. And Mike says it's good to be best friends. I love having a good friend. Except he's obviously doesn't really mean that because he wants it to be more. And he's trying to tell himself that that's good. But you can tell that he's like, "Uh uh-huh, that's all I wanted you to say. And Scott says, I only have sex with a guy for money. And two guys can't love each other. And Scott's a shitbag. Hate this piece of human garbage. I hate Hal. I hate Scott so much. This scene physically harmed me. This scene took me out into the streets and shot me in the heart. Nothing has harmed me more emotionally than this scene because I have been here. Well, because the thing is that Mike follows it up with being like, I mean... I could love someone even if I wasn't paid for it. Like, I love you and you don't pay me. And he's just like, I just want to kiss you. Good night. Fucking rough buddy. Like, And then he curls into a ball and is like, I love you. You know that I love you. And Scott offers to kiss Mike, but it's not real. It wouldn't be real. It's not real. I have actually actively been in this position before and it sucks Megan have you been in this position before have you told someone that you like them and they have been not outright cruel to you but have been just kind of nice to you and that's kind of a little bit worse than if they outright rejected you entirely you know I have Marquez exactly so it's rough and I think that this film captures that so fucking well that it hurts but at the same time i think river phoenix delivers this shit like no one else can see because here's the thing if another actor did this i could so easily see being like oh cool so you think that you deserve them loving you just because you love them but that's not how this comes across it comes across as like why do you lead me on like this if you don't think it's even physically possible to care for me River Phoenix sells it. He sells, sells it. it when so many people it. could make me go, oh, you're a shitty person too. You're selling, I'm buying, man. So they go to bed and wake up in the morning and ignore it. And Scott is trying to get his bike started in the motorbike that they were riding before. And Mike falls asleep in the road. A cop comes. Mike gets scared. And Mike starts to run away and falls asleep again. Scott doesn't run away because he's got a fucking safety net. And so he's he just like, have... yeah, hi, I'm a rich white guy. How are you? Yep, yep, yep. Doesn't have to worry about the cops. Hate it, hate it, hate it. And the cop's like, let me fix your bike. And then Scott picks up Mike from the field and is like, haha, it's funny that you had to run away from the cops. 
and then they drive off to Idaho. Well, by that, I mean, I think they were in Idaho because it was the road. But they finally get to Mike's brother's trailer. And this might lead to possibly what is my least favorite scene in most things that we've watched. Because it doesn't need to be there. Okay, let's get into it. Yep. In this scene, we're getting the whole backstory. Mike is trying to find his mother. He has been. He doesn't know who his father is. He doesn't have proof of who his father is. His brother, Richard's just like, here's a picture of your mom. She wasn't good. She wasn't safe. So you were in an institution, but she'd visit every week because she cared. And it's this whole thing of like, you know, she cared so much about you, but you know, she just couldn't care for you. And so, you know, you just kind of had to get pushed aside and it's too much for Mike and he falls asleep. The camera cuts to Scott getting some water, I think, in a bathroom and then off screen, we hear Mike and Richard fighting. And Scott goes to break it up. They get drinks and Richard finally wants to tell the truth about Mike's father. So he tells him our mom was a sex worker but he says it in a shitty way. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm using the shitty. nice words. I'm using the nice words. He's using the bad, bad words. And she used to like sleep with a gun and stir fried the vegetables with the gun. But then she fell in love with Mike's dad, who I think was like a casino guy. Was that it? Uh, He was a cowboy fuck. So he was a cowboy fuck. And then he tells this whole story about how his mom shot the dad. And honestly, Mike has had enough and Mike reveals that he knows the truth about his father. And it's revealed that Richard, his brother, is also his father. At which point I said, wait, did his mom fuck her son? Yes. Or is he not his brother? Nope, she she had sex with her son and had a baby. And he looks like he was probably like 10 at that point. Like Very maybe young. like 13. Yes. No older than like 13, though. This sucks and doesn't need to be in the film. It doesn't need to be here. He can have a messed up life without this incest. Also, it makes me think that they're saying that the reason he's narcoleptic is because he's a product of incest and it's just mean. Yes. Like, it's just cruel and unnecessary. I think it doesn't need to be in the film. No! Because there's two stories, Megan, in this film. There is the drifting, finding your mother story that we are now getting into, and the Shakespeare Prince Hal story. And want to know what neither of those need? An incestuous mother-brother relationship? An incestuous mother and brother relationship. Unnecessary. It could just be like, hey, she's not here. She hasn't been here for a long time. Here's the thing about the institution. We don't talk about your father. Just like, I don't know, man. Yeah. But here's a postcard from her. Because how the scene ends is Richard goes, here's a postcard from her. And... It's for Richard. And it says, here's where I am working now. Love bomb. But yeah, I wish it was just like... I don't know where she is. We don't keep in touch. I don't know who your dad is. But here's a postcard that you can try to find her. I know it others Mike further, but Mike doesn't need othering further. He's already othered. You know what would be dang othering? To be like, oh, so mom sent you a postcard? How come she's never sent me one? Yeah, that's fine enough. Mike is gay and narcoleptic. And a sex worker. He doesn't need (laughs) more. Yes. So... Mike hits the road again with Scott. They go to this place called the Family Tree, looking for Sharon, Mike's mom, but she doesn't work there. She's in Italy now, but she gave an address in Italy before she left, because I guess she really liked her job, because who would do that? And then Scott and Mike run into Hans, the pervert who gave them a ride to Portland. And they're like, yeah, I guess we'll go have sex with Hans. For some reason, Hans shows them a picture of his dead mother. It's a weird picture. Hans reveals that he was a performer, and he does a weird performance art thingy with a lamp. It's my favorite part of Henry the Fourth Part Two. Oh, when that happens? Yeah. When the weird... When uh, the German guy does a lamp dance? When the German car part seller slash John does a weird lamp dance. And during this whole thing, it's very obvious that Mike's about to pass out and Scott notices it and turns off the music and is like, wow, good show and applauds, which makes Mike wake up, which seems way nicer than Scott normally is. And then Scott tells them that they're here selling motorcycles. And then 
they all have sex. And the way that the sex is done is very artistic because all it is is steady shots of a pose. But it's not a freeze frame. Like, it's not a picture. You can tell that they're, like, breathing and standing still and, like, their hands move slightly when you're holding yourself still. But it's just, like, held for a few seconds, different pose, held for a few seconds. And it's interesting. Here's why I like it. Why? Because that is what sex probably feels like to them as sex workers. Yeah. It is not intimate and erotic. It is going through the motions. Yes. Like, because you can have sex that's intimate and erotic and be a sex worker. That's fine. But But I think that's not what this sex with Hans is. No. So I like that. We cut to Hans riding this motorcycle and the same cop comes up upon him. And we think, oh, no, this motorcycle was previously established as being stolen. And Mike got away. Maybe Hans will get arrested for stealing the motorcycle. No, he just gets a ticket for speeding because Hans is probably also let off the hook for being white. And they're flying to Rome. And they laugh. They're like, Hans. <laughs> and I went, I, OK, I don't get the joke, but OK. And they get on a flight to Rome. Oh, wait, they're in Rome. Oh, wait, Mike's asleep in Rome. Yep. And he wakes up. And I like, it feels like when he wakes up that he's in the same place as he was in Portland with just a bunch of guys around him. But this time he can't understand the language. But it is filmed in the same way as the drifty nature of them just talking. And I like that. Mike is even more othered in the fact that he cannot speak this language now. Yes. Luckily, Scotty comes up with a cab. Apparently, he just left Mike sleeping with a bunch of Italian guys. And was just like, ah, watch this sleeping guy. Bye. I'm going to get a cab. And they go to the address that's on the postcard. And it's this little farmhouse. And we meet Carmela. You know, like Catherine from Henry V. It's a meat cute of the straits. Is it bad that I wish that this was more like the Henry V bit where they were like, Sex jokes, sex jokes. Vaginal part joke. I mean, I'd like it more. It turns out that Sharon's not there. She left a while ago. And this is where I said, of course, if you found your mother, your arc would be over and you would stop drifting. So, sorry, movie won't allow this. Her timeline's really messed up. I tried figuring it out. It makes no sense because it's like, mom sent this thing a couple months ago. Like, the postcard was from a couple months ago in that hotel and then the hotel was like she hasn't worked here for months and then the girl was like she hasn't lived here for years none of it made sense but i'm gonna just move past it because it doesn't matter because it's never gonna get resolved we're not supposed to be able to follow it i thank you for coming to this realization that trying to logic it is a fruitless endeavor because this film is all about drifting from place to place and time being amorphous i'm very happy that you learned to let go I'm still mad. That's not letting go, Megan. Still mad. Okay. Breathe in. Breathe out. It doesn't matter. My anger doesn't matter. What matters is that Mike is sad, which is completely understandable because he's starting to forget the color of his mom's house and like his childhood and what he's been clinging on to for his past. And it's very upsetting. Well, I mean, as you get older, you start to forget this stuff, too. And that's kind of what sucks because he doesn't have physical memories, like photos and such of his mother. So No, just... all the flashback quote unquotes that we've been seeing are in his imagination. His mother never held him in his lap when he was older. This is all just him imagining what it would be like if she was there. And he's ready to leave. Mike's ready to leave. Except... Okay, I'm sorry. I just gotta say, Mike... You just got to Italy. You're not going to find your mom anywhere. There's no leaves. You might as well explore Italy. He wants to go back. He wants to go home. Megan, I totally agree with you. If you are in Italy and you are a drifter, you could find sex work in Italy and make your way around. Exactly. You're just going back to drift around in Portland. Why not drift around Italy for a bit? Correct. You have to pay for a plane ticket. Correct. How are you paying for it? Well, Scott's going to pay for it. Well, yeah, but like, come on. Scott can pay for it later. Well, no, he can't because he's too busy fucking Carmella. Her eyes stay open when they kiss the entire time. I can't. They also fucking stills, which makes me reverse what I said last time about the fucking being a metaphor. I don't like it here. Yeah, because it's like, I liked that idea of it just being because you're going through the motions, but we're supposed to believe that they're in love with each other now. 
And Mike rolls his eyes at the straights, which I agree with because they are disgustingly sexual around him. They're also just like weird. Yeah. Even when they're not being sexual, they're just like wide eyes. And I'm like, stop. I Look hate, at your food and eat it. Like, stop. I hate scenes where a bed's creaking and you hear sex noises and then there's a character who's just like, this is fine. And that's what happens to Mike. And Mike deserves better. Except the film clearly doesn't want him to. And the next day, Carmela tells Mike that she's in love with Scott. And Mike understands because he's in love with Scott. And she's crying about it. And Mike's like, yeah, I've been there. I also get this because if there's anyone who can understand how shitty straight boys are than gay men, it's straight women. (laughs) But please, can they stop fucking? Because we get another scene where they're fucking and Mike's just sitting there. And then Scott's like, hey, I'm in love with this chick, so I'm going to take some time off. I'm like, from what? And here's money to go home, Mike. From collecting your inheritance? Yeah, time off. Like, what time off? This is why we hate Scott and why we hate Hal. Because he says, I am taking time off from doing nothing to do nothing with a girl. Basically, I think what he means is, hey, I'm going to take time off from being there to support you. Yeah, I'm taking Uh, time off from you. you. (laughs) So here's some money. Sorry we couldn't find your mom. Bye. And then they leave and Mike is stuck at the house. And that makes no sense. They didn't even ask Mike if he could watch their dog. Mike finds his way back by turning tricks and having narcolepsy attacks on planes. He also has a narcolepsy attack at the one guy's house. And luckily, the guy is just like, oh, this kid's asleep and leaves. He's back in Portland now, though. And he goes back to the diner where all the sex workers hang out. And he just kind of slots back into that old life, but now without Scott. It's kind of like he had no story, and then he went off to try to find a story and ended up completing Scott's story, and then went back to have no story again. And guess what, Megan? That sucks. I'm sorry, Mike. Hearts out to Mike. At least he gets to watch The Simpsons. Yeah, before fucking. Scott's back. Scott returns. He's in a suit now. The prodigal son. Because now that is what he is, because he's now married, and... He's inherited the money. Because his dad's dead. And he goes to a bar and all the rich white dudes are like, oh, you really made something of yourself, son. So glad you're not a sex worker anymore. Business talk, business talk, business talk, business talk, mergers. But Bob sees him go into this fancy bar and Bob's like, oh my God, it's my gentleman. I'm going to go and see him. It's going to be great. I also want to mention that the rich guys are like, have you ever considered getting into politics? And I'm like, no, he cannot be Henry V. And then Bob follows him and all the rich people are like, ew, look at this drifter. He's disgusting. Oh, we also see Hans with a trick. Yeah, we do. That's interesting that Hans also exists in this. This fancy bar. Yeah, I like that, though. Yeah. it, It showcases that it doesn't matter if you're on the streets. It is a matter of wealth and that rich people will hire sex workers and they'll be legitimate while the sex workers are not legitimate. Yep. And then we have a scene that sucks and I dislike it. And by sucks and dislike, I mean, I like the scene as it is in the movie, but I hate what happens in it. Go, Megan. It is that bit from Henry the Fourth Part 2 where Falstaff's like, my boy, you're so great. I'm going to kneel before you and welcome you home. And then Scott doesn't even turn to look at him and just says, I don't know you, old man. Leave me alone. How fucking sucks. And then Bob's really sad and confused. Scott says like, you know, I love you more dearly than my dead father, but I have to turn away. And until I change back, don't come near me. Which is kind of weird that he says this in front of a ton of people. But I mean, it's still just completely turning on this person who you have always said, and you're saying again right now, you supposedly love more than your father, but he means nothing to you. So this is different than Henry the Fourth Part Two. Yes. Because of what Scott says about still loving Bob. And I don't like it. No, I think it's worse. I think it's worse that you say, I, I love do. you, but fuck off. Yes. I prefer straight rejection. Yes, because that's just cutting him free. Yeah. If nothing else. What he's doing to Bob is similar to what he does to Mike, where he's just like, I mean, I'll have sex with you, but I could never love you. But if you're so sad about it, I guess kiss me. 
Uh, so then Bob dies alone by saying, oh God, oh God, oh God. Which is exactly what happens in Henry V. And they're having like a little wake at the house and it's sad. And then we cut to two opposite funerals and it is Scott's mayor father and Bob. And Bob's discount funeral. I just needed to say it, Megan. I couldn't get it out of my head. Of course, the mayoral funeral is like a legitimate, quote unquote, a regular funeral. It's funerals that I hate, Megan. Yes. I hate funerals like this. It's white people. It's rich white people funerals. It's like he was a good man. And we all stand here in our black solemnly. And then his casket goes down and we all stand here and say nothing. And then we walk away. Whereas the street people have a rapturous funeral for Bob. Uh, it is celebrating Bob's life, which is what I think funerals should be. They should be celebrating the person while also being sad. I want to also connect this again to Henry V, because in Henry V, there are two scenes, one after the other, where it's once more into the breach and this big pomp monologue that's like, ah, yes, we are the people. And then... The very next scene is like on on to the breach and it's like a lower class version of it that yeah. has all the other people. And I think this does that perfectly. This is a perfect mirror of that into this story. They do have a little moment where Scott looks from his proper dad's funeral to Bob's funeral and it's almost like kind of listful, but I don't think that Scott deserves it. In behind the scenes things, they say that Scott kind of wishes that he could be at that funeral, but you he doesn't seem to make any move towards it. Yes, he just looks. And he looks at it for a long time, but he doesn't even say anything to his wife sitting next to him. He says nothing. He does nothing. So no, screw him. Like, he made his choice. I would like it if his wife was just like, honey, is everything okay? And then he snaps out of it. Right. And then he goes, no, nothing. Everything's fine. Because then that would be like, wow, I was so distracted from my own father's funeral. But with this, it's just like, you could almost see it as him looking at it going, wow, that's a really loud thing they're doing over there. It's a little bit too amorphous to give any judgment on what Scott's thinking. Anyway, Bob's funeral's fantastic. There's an accordion song where the only lyrics are Bob. And then they start yelling Bob. There's a mosh pit. And then they have an orgy on his casket thing. It's a big Bob day. And the camera looks up. And then we have shots of America again. And now we're back on that road. Mike's road. And Mike and is back in Idaho again. And he falls asleep. And a car drives by and two dudes steal his shoes and all of his shit. And that's so mean. But then another car comes and picks him up and they drive away. And we don't see who it is. But in a deleted scene, we see that it's his brother Richard. His brother father Richard. And you could kind of guess that. So I guess that's why they cut it, because they were like, we don't need this confirmation shot. Also, I think it's just kind of weird, because their relationship's not good. Why are we ending on it? Because that's the end. I like it not knowing that it's Richard. Right. I like being like, well, I mean, who else could it be? It's got to be Richard, right? Well, I don't know. I like it because it makes it like, well, he's just drifting off again to who knows where. If it's Richard, you knows where. So I prefer the film as it stands for that. And the film ends with text that says, have a nice day. Yeah, thanks. More films should tell me to have a nice day after <laughs> oh, I thanks. watch them. If we shadows have offended, please have a nice day. Yes, <laughs> that's what it is. It's that monologue. The movie is over. Let's talk about it. Okay. I have a big question. Yeah. Why is it called My Own Private Idaho? Well, the B-52s, a band steeped in gay culture, have a song called Private Idaho that Gus Van Sant listened to while writing the film. And some of the lyrics that I want to point out to you are, you're living in your own private Idaho, Idaho, you're out of control, the rivers that roll, you fell into the water and down to Idaho. Okay. Which I think really shows that that's where Mike is. <laughs> He's trapped in Idaho. He's trapped in his past that he'll never know. And no matter how much he drifts, he will always come back to Idaho. Yeah. That's kind of sad. So I've got three questions that all kind of revolve around Falstaff because I myself am a person from early modern England who wants more Falstaff. So one, 
Is there anything else that happens in Henry the Fourth Part Two besides Hal saying "Forget you to Falstaff"? Because I absolutely read it this week and don't remember anything that happened in it besides that. And also, nothing else in this movie is from that. I feel like Falstaff has a long speech about honor. Hey, Megan. Yeah. Ah, the honor speech is from Henry the Fourth Part One. So, really, the only good thing that happens in Henry the Fourth Part Two is Hal turning his back on Falstaff, which is actually the worst thing to ever happen in a play. That's not true, but it's it's up there. Uh, second thing, considering basically the only thing that happens in Henry the Fourth Part Two, and also happens in Part One, and also happens in Henry the Fifth, is war. It kind of sucks trying to do Falstaff. And Hal's relationship, I think, without the war, because, I don't know, there's a bit in the war in Henry the Fourth, Part 1, where Hal thinks that Falstaff's dead because he's playing dead. And he, like, says this little thing about how it sucks and how he cares about Falstaff and he should have been able to live longer. And then it turns out that Falstaff's alive. But, like, we don't get anything like that for these two. So I feel like that's an instance where Shakespeare, like, showed that Hal cares about Falstaff because he didn't think Falstaff was listening. But in this film, Scott just says like, oh yeah, no, me and Bob go back. He loves me and I love him. But it's never like proven. Yeah, It's just him saying it, which I mean might partially be because he's not genuine about it, but it makes me mad and sad for Falstaff slash Bob. My final thing is that I'm really glad that they moved Falstaff slash Bob's death to the end because it's supposed to happen before he meets his wife, and that would suck. Did you know that the end of Henry IV, Part Two, Falstaff comes on, gives an epilogue that's just like, and you'll see more of me in Henry V. And then they go to Henry V, and they're like, Falstaff is dead. It's because the actor got in bad with Shakespeare and quit the company, fun fact. Great. So then he just kind of wrote Falstaff out of Henry V. Yeah, so I'm really glad that since Bob's actor was still doing well with the director, that became a more integral part and was the ending instead of randomly three quarters through this film. Henry V has a terrible ending. Oh, I love that it has a terrible ending. It's just like, I'm in love with my wife. And then I go home and the chorus is like, and he is here. Megan, I fucking love that the whole play is like, we gotta do this battle, we gotta fight this battle. Oh, I disguise myself as a lowly person to hear what people think of me as king. We do the battle, it's a big battle, we love it. Oh, good, great job. Ho, 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 let's have sex jokes about my new queen. And that's how it, like, ends wild. Bad play. Better than... Part two? Part two? Yeah, correct. Sorry, I shouldn't say bad play because the highs are high in Henry V. I saw it on stage recently, and by recently, I mean in the last 10 years. (laughs) That's recently for me. It's a pretty good play. I like the scene where Falstaff is dead because I like that Mistress quickly gets like... An actual scene? A good bit, like a good like lengthy bit, and I think she is a powerful character in that play alone and not really in the other ones. So Megan, are you ready to hear... What Roger Ebert thought of this movie? Yes. The achievement of this film is that it wants to evoke that state of drifting need, and it does. There is no mechanical plot that has to grind to a Hollywood conclusion, and no contrived test for the heroes to pass. This is a movie about two particular young men and how they pass their lives. I think that that's super accurate, and why I kind of love this film. So here's my question. Yeah? Is it a good adaptation? Yes. Here's why I think that is so. I think that Gus Van Sant recognized that the lives of these sex workers on the street matched up with the lives of the lower class in England and how there is a huge amount of economic disparity in cities in America in this day. And I think he expertly tied those two together. He also added a second film onto that. But I do think that the parts that are adaptation are a good adaptation, which is why I think it rules. I also think that it does something that I always like commending on this podcast, which is when they use the language, but they update it to make it make sense. And it's done, as we said before, flawlessly. 
And though I didn't like that they cut the scene between Hal and Falstaff pretending they're both the dad, I think that they kept all of the parts that are good in all three of the plays and just got rid of the chaff. I love the fact that it's like Henry V. He likes an Italian girl? Yeah, it, it, we, we cover Henry V. He likes some girl he can't understand the language of that well? Got it. Got it. We can say that this is Henry V too now. His dad dies? Got it. There's a funeral? Got it. Got it. MVP? Oh, you want me to go first? Yeah. River Phoenix as Mike. I can't, that one scene, I can't get it out of my brain. It will be in my brain till I die. Man, what is your MVP? It's Bob. I just like Falstaff. As I said, I'm an early modern person just watching the show and I go, I like that big portly man. He's funny. He makes me laugh. And also, he can be a little bit serious. And just because I spend all of these films always going, where's the Shakespeare? And he was always very obviously Falstaff. I was like, thank you, sir. He was larger than life. And I totally get it. He's my number three. I gotta give it to the two boys. No, that's fair. I love to like Keanu Reeves. And the fact that I... It's hard to hate him. It hurts. And the fact that I hated Keanu Reeves in this film... Means he's a good actor. Means he's a good actor. As I often say, just because I chose Bob, it does not mean that I don't think they were incredible. They were both amazing. Hey, Megan. I have something that Shakespeare would have thought about this film. Oh! I've stolen your bit, Megan. I... okay. So, this is what Shakespeare... Is it the line where it says gay? Because when I was reading Henry V today, I saw the word gay and instantly went, oh! Yes, Megan, it is the line where it says gay, but it also really does, in fact, (laughs) connect to the material. So what I think Shakespeare would have thought of this film is, Our gayness and our guilt are all besmirched with rainy marching in the painful field. Our happiness and the shininess of ourselves are ruined by trudging forth. And I think that Mike's life is ruined by this trudging forth. So Megan, what rating would you give My Own Private Idaho? I would give it 11 times Mike Falls Asleep out of the 12 hours that it takes to fly from Boise, Idaho to Rome. Jesus Christ. Christ, you could have said the chimes at midnight of the 12 hours and the chimes at midnight, but no, you went above and beyond. I was just curious how long he was asleep for. That's a long narcolepsy now. I would love to fall asleep during an international flight the, for the entire whole time, and yes. then I'd be like, Sir, we've arrived. And you're like, Yes. Marquez, what would you rate my own private Idaho? I'd rate my own private Idaho Henry the Fifth out of Henry the Fourth. Oh. 125% score. I think this film fucking rules, Megan. Well, that's going to just about do it for us here on Avant Bard. If you liked what you listened to, please follow us on all social media at Avant Bard Pod. And if you really liked what you heard, you can support us at patreon.com slash Avant Bard Pod. Bloopers for this week's episode will be on Patreon next week. But until then, we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlow. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avant Bard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at Avant Bard Pod.